Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Ram Ayer, CEO of CoroBio. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ram. It's my pleasure, Rahul. Great. So Ram, to kick us off, talk to us how you got interested in biotech, the arc of your career, and how you got to where you are today. Always a straight line to get exactly where I am, Rahul. <laughs> I think it's hard for me to talk about how I got here if I don't start from my origins, right? So for me, I was born in Mumbai in India, spent about 10 years there. I did my elementary school there, then moved to Bahrain, which is a country in the Middle East, spent about 10 years there, did my high school, and then moved back to India to go and do what every good Indian kid would do. We had two choices at that point in time. You either go into engineering or med school. My passion was to get into med school, but it was too expensive. And so I ended up going down the engineering path. So spent four years there in a college in Mumbai University. And then came to the U.S. to really expand on my educational background with a professor at Drexel University, who eventually became a president of the IEEE Society to work on data fusion, the idea of combining information from different sensors, different sources, think of robotics, think of radars, and combining that information and making decisions and creating knowledge. So that was my intent. I came without a scholarship and landed up in his office and said, hey, we'd like to sit down and work. He said, well, I don't have anything right now. Come back in about six months. And I think that started a process of beating the door at his office every week and <laughs> trying to figure out what we can do here. So eventually he relented, ended up staying there for about a couple of years and then going to Bell Labs to work as a network engineer for a little bit. Since then, it was during the time of the dot-com era. You, when you get a job at Bell Labs, you don't look anywhere else. It's a very prestigious organization. Little did I pay attention to was uh, I was under a larger umbrella of Lucent <laughs> Networks, which was stock from when I joined and accepted the offer, which was $120 a share, went to about $1 a share by the time I joined. And so that immediately meant that I was told I was in the high-risk category and I was not there anymore two weeks after joining because I lost in first out. And so ended up coming back, doing a PhD. I ended up getting a project from J&J at that point in time to differentiate three different drugs. Always wanted to get into med school, as I said. And so here was a way for me to go through the back door, so to speak, and get into helping patients. That led me to going and working at what folks now call Janssen for a little about eight years in total. And met some wonderful individuals there. Learned a lot. In fact, learned the biology on the fly. They were very willing to help out a curious Indian kid and understand how things actually work. Was fortunate to be at a place where I got onto compound development teams that have now eventually become drugs and learned how to do drug development if you had the right resources and the right impetus behind it. Post that, I ended up going and getting a business degree in INSEA, which is in France. Not many folks know about it in the U.S., but it's the number one business school outside of the U.S. And for some in the U.S., it's in the top five 
I would say that it was a culturally very, very interesting experience. You had 83 countries represented, not like business schools here where you had Americans who were from 83 different origins. These folks actually came from there. Uh, I led to a very rich and vibrant conversations. I got into business school to finally get into venture. And at those days, you only get into venture through investment banking. And so spent some time as an investment banker, a brief period of three months at JP Morgan in London. And by the time I came back to school, I had an offer at Sophie Nova Partners, which was a premier life science fund, I believe the largest life science early stage fund in Europe. Started investing in companies, both medtech and biotech. Again, fortunate to be there at a time where I learned a lot quickly, but Paris just wasn't for us. And so we decided to come back, my wife and my daughter, who is at that point in time, three years old, and came back to the US, have been in the US ever since. And you know, once you start companies and you taste blood, it's hard to go back. And so have now started close to six companies so far, four of which have exited. And Coro is one that I just joined where I've taken the helm as CEO. Great. Thanks, Ram. Going back to the earlier part of that arc, where do you think that perseverance as a graduate student to go and knock on that advisor's door weekly came from if you had to point to something? It's not that different from the where the markets are today. You want to think of when you don't have alternatives and you don't have choices and you need to raise financing to go and survive, then you'll do everything that you need to do to make that happen, right? And so for me, it was one of those pieces where I had sufficient coverage for, I want to say, six months. And beyond that, from a financial standpoint, you know, we had to figure something out. And so the combination of, you know, the need (laughs) and the urgency in which to do it, I think you don't have many choices. Yeah, certainly. And Ram, you founded several companies now. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what the, some of the non-obvious differences are in terms of being senior leadership and founder of a company versus being CEO that were a surprise to you that you had to quickly learn? I would say if you just take a step back, most of the other companies that I work with, I think I had the pleasure of working with somebody that I got to know over time, understood the science. We sat down and had beers and discussed, you know, what we're going to do. And then we sort of went forward. That was a part that you learn from each other, you know, if you can work with each other and then you sort of say, okay, you know, I'm going to dip my toes here. When you step and so that sort of dynamic is very different than taking over as a CEO of an existing company that has a certain number of people. The second thing I would say is that the size of the company matters. And so if you are the, the company that I was previously at and co-founded, which was called Corvidia Therapeutics, and I'll touch on the premise there, we started with four co-founders. Each of us had our own expertise and impetus to do this. We were all first time, except for one individual. And then the second component was eventually we ended up only being a 15-person company when the company was sold. And we had taken an asset before it entered the clinic, ran about 300 patients or so. We run clinical studies. And we're ready to launch a cardiovascular outcome study in 5,000 patients. We've done the manufacturing and we've done all of the scientific hypotheses that led up to that point. And so I knew that you could do that with 15 people. So it's not a question of, you know, achieving that much. And we had only raised around $100 million or so in that context. Taking Coro is slightly different. We are right now at about 90 STEs and a whole bunch of consultants around the table. 
I think that the motivation and the drive and helping people understand, you know, how biotechs work in a Boston community, I think you always have to continually do that. And the only way that I know how to do it is roll up my sleeves and do it. So it's not necessarily the best approach when you are a certain size, but that's the one that I know how to do. And so either role modeling or helping people get over the hump, I think is an important aspect. Yeah. To that point about as the company scales, how do you think about your role changing as you go from founding a company and there's five, 10 of you to now approaching a hundred at Coral? And what's your own kind of mental model around the different phases of being a CEO as a company evolves? I would say the number one thing is to just have self-awareness when you don't think you cannot do something. <laughs> just make sure you know that. I think when you're a small group of folks, everybody does pretty much everything. It's a question of, okay, we have 10 balls in the air, who's going to catch it and sort of drive with it. And it doesn't really matter if it means taking the trash out or talking to investors at that point in time. And I think as the company grows, you have in the early phases, even in the mid phases, you have generalists that can do a lot of different things. But as you evolve, you need to bring specialists to the table. You need to bring experienced people around who have done one thing or two things or three things very well over the life of their career. And they are important to take you to that next evolution. And so initially it's around the science, Next, it's around the preclinical development, then it's around the clinical development, and then it's commercial, right? It's very rare to find somebody that can do that extremely well at each of those stages. And so for me, it's about getting the right people at those different stages that you can do that. So that's on the technical piece. On the people component, I don't think it changes. It doesn't matter what size you are. You need to spend time with people. You need to tell them why you're doing this. You need to tell them that we're doing this together as a team. We either win or lose together. There's no in-betweens. And folks will self-select along the way. Folks that want to stick around and buy the vision and understand how this works, they stick around. Folks that don't, you know, you can't tell somebody not to go and achieve something because that's not what fits within, within your enterprise. So those are the two things. I mean, I look at it in two different lenses. You need to think about it from a technical standpoint, and then you also need to think about it from a people perspective. That certainly resonates. I'm going to switch gears a bit and talk about fundraising and being in that CEOC and now having to obviously drive that process. How has your interaction pattern and approach to fundraising changed from the first time you did it to the most recent time? The one thing that has changed, that has been a big thing is you first had you as your front facing in terms of you were three or four of you, there was nobody underneath. You had to do the diligence questions. You had to do the outreach. You had to go and meet the folks. You were actively involved and you knew operationally what was going on at a very nitty gritty level. And I think as a company grows, different people capture different expertise over time. And so going together as a team and doing that fundraise is very, very different than sort of having everything within a core group of two or three people. So I would say that has been an evolution. And that's something that's like how companies grow. You have to give up a few things <laughs> so that you let either other folks expand their knowledge base or expand your capabilities and look around the corner, so to speak. So I wouldn't say yeah. the fundraise has changed. 
I think the environment definitely has changed in terms of how you think about fundraising and who you would approach, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And now being in that CEO seat, you know, oftentimes can be quite the lonely journey, let's say. What have you found that works for you in terms of navigating those ups and downs just internally for you and then how you communicate and how your team perceives you as well? So number one, before I get into that, Rahul, I would say that having a fantastic support system at home was the number one thing. I have two daughters at home, one a 10-year-old and one a 14-year-old. They know how to keep me humble at all times. And the second piece is I have a partner and my wife that has an emotional quotient that's off the chart. She's my number one advisor internally. So I would say I have a very, very strong foundation at home. Mm. I think I've heard this talk about, you know, the CEO role being very lonely. And I think it's a choice you make, right? There are things that you can do alone and there are things that you can do as a team. And my philosophy with my team is that we work together. And there are decisions that we will take together. There are challenges that we'll work together, but there is a level of transparency and understanding as to how this is going to function. And the reason is that people come to a startup so that they can understand how the entire system works. If you start siloing information and not working well together, it sort of creates a culture that's not ideal. So yes, it could be a lonely place, but I've been fortunate both from a team perspective as well as I would say from a board perspective, I've had the good fortune of having a very interactive environment. So I wouldn't exactly say it's been lowly. I would say the decisions sometimes you take, you know, eventually land on you and you need to have the strength to be able to take some of those decisions. And that may seem lowly, but outside of that, I don't think this is, at least biotech, is not a one-person thing. It has to be a team. If you're an HR or hiring manager in biotech, you know all too well that the pool of experts seeking full-time employment is shrinking. Filling key full-time positions can be a long, drawn-out ordeal that can slow the pace of execution and growth. Throw away the old hiring playbook. Now you can build a biotech dream team in a fraction of that time. Find out how. Visit Clora.com. Clora, talent optimized. All right. So before we jump into talking about Coro, I'd love if you could educate us on the field of RNA editing and your perspectives on where that is now, the evolution of that space, and where you see it heading long-term. Thanks for asking that question, Rahul. It's front and center for me, both in terms of educating not just the investor community, but just the community in general. I'll just take one quick segue before I talk about that. In my previous company, the four of us, we identified a single SNP, a point mutation, a single alphabet change on DNA that made patients with chronic kidney disease susceptible to inflammation. Okay. And so it was a non-obvious discovery. We had patents in terms of how we would identify and select patients. And it wasn't linear. So it wasn't in the pathway at all in terms of the biology. And so we knew that we could identify modifier genes based on a single variant that has an impact on large patient populations. When you think about where editing as a technology exists, we talk about CRISPR-Cas9 systems and there's a whole slew of other things that come along. They're fantastic to fix that line of sight. If that point mutation led to that disease, 
then you fix that point mutation. And it's a very homogeneous patient population. If you can fix that and the risk benefit is there, you're willing to do a DNA and modify your genome. When you think about large patient populations, that is not really feasible on multiple levels. Number one, I don't think the drug product, like think about what kind of drug product needs to be there to build confidence that you go into a heterogeneous patient population, make a single genomic edit, not have any adverse events, not have chromosomal integration, and not cause something like pancytopenia that's going to last forever. I mean, I don't think the regulators will actually do that. And so that is what led me to Coro. So when I saw Coro and I met Ness Birmingham, Jean-Francois Fomella from Atlas, and Ali Bebahani from NEA, and Colin Walsh from Chiming and Hannah from Platinus, you know, the folks around the table had a pretty good idea as what they were getting into. Going and making a single edit, creating a missense variant, and doing that with a drug product that looks like what Alnylam and Ionis make, that the regulators have seen, that physicians have seen and prescribed. I think bringing that same genetic benefit, but in larger patient numbers with a known drug element really got me excited. And when I joined, I think there was still a vision to be laid out in terms of where is this going to go? Which indications does it make the most sense, et cetera, et cetera. And when I joined, we had laid out a vision in terms of we're going to go after large heterogeneous patient populations. We're going to go after novel biology. And over the last two years, we've actually laid out the plan and shown data to show that we can do that. But what we do at Coro is use a synthetic oligonucleotide, like an antisense oligo or an siRNA, to co-opt an endogenous enzyme that is present in each of our cells and redirect it to go and make a single base change on RNA. So it's not permanent, it's transient, redosable, and follows a very drug-like property. Thanks for that background. Talk to us a little bit about how development has gone, where you are now from a pipeline building perspective, and what you're looking forward to over the next year. Yeah. So I want to say that over the last six to nine months, we are hitting escape velocity, so to speak. The team has come together. The infrastructure has come together. Our lead indication, again, just thinking about a startup, even though we are 90 people, still need to show novel biology works in humans. And so we wanted to take off layers of clinical risk. So we're going after a rare Mendelian disease that has a heterogeneous patient population. It has over 250,000 patients worldwide. And it is going after a target tissue type where synthetic oligonucleotides have been delivered, which is the liver. So our lead indication is a disease called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. It is a single point mutation for a secreted protein from the liver. And that creates two pathophysiologies, one in the liver because this protein aggregates and two because it's not available in the lung, which is its business end of the deal. And so you lose lung function as well as liver function over a period of time. And so we are one of maybe two companies that are actually going after this and fixing this mutation to affect both of those pathologies. And Ram, given your background across various different companies now, Talk to us a little bit about how your framework for indication selection has changed. And given the power of the platform technology that you're working on now, that there's so many things that you could pursue, how you decide on first, second, third. 
Yeah, that is for any company at any stage, no matter how evolved they are. I think that that is a fundamental question that you need to ask and have a clear line of sight. I think the way that we initially laid out in 2021 was let's show how RNA editing is differentiated. Okay. And so we went down a path of showing that we had a clear lead indication in alpha one, which was a genetic mutation, commercially feasible, no questions asked from a regulatory perspective. All we needed to show it and will show over the next few years is that we can achieve the level of editing and the clinical benefit that we need to get. From an indication standpoint, we really think of it in three different buckets. One is what is the commercial feasibility of it? And it can't be, you know, let's thread the needle and we hope, and eventually when this gets diagnosed, we're going to find people. I don't think that's how it works. So for us, we are really focused on, can we find this patient today? And is it a number north of 50,000 or not? And how do we access them? So that's the commercial feasibility is the first one. The second one is looking at the target in and of itself. And when you think about an indication, you can, given our technology, we can actually edit any A to a G, right? And so, which means that that opens up the number of edits that we can make, even across the number of targets, immeasurable. Coding, non-coding, we can do a lot. And so then it comes down to, well, what is the feasibility of the target from a genetic perspective? Do we have patient data to suggest differential outcomes based on a potential edit that we want to make? And what is the validity around it? That's the toughest part. You usually never have the data to support it, but you will have indication. And so when we started, we said, okay, let's look at known biology and go after where targets are known, but they just haven't been able to go after those targets for whatever reason. And then the third component is differentiation, which is not differentiation just relative to editing. It's differentiation relative to small molecules, antibodies, gene therapies, whatever it is. How is RNA editing uniquely different in solving this problem? So you take those three elements. It's never easy. We have an entire cross-functional team that their sole duty is to go and look at these indications. And I think that it's a combination of those three elements that we put forward a target as well as an indication. Yeah, wonderful and very thoughtful response. Thank you for sharing years and decades of knowledge in such a succinct manner. Let's look towards the future of biotech. And we talked a little bit about the hope that you have in terms of where we're headed at as a sector and its impact on humanity. I'd love if you could talk to us about where you think we're headed and particularly at the nexus of now software, diagnostics, therapeutics, and how you see that all coming together. That's a great question. I've been contemplating that for the last 15 years or so, even before I left Johnson & Johnson. I would say that they all need to play together in a symphony. What do I mean by that? I think that you need to have diagnostic capabilities. You need to have device capabilities. You need to have a therapeutic modality. You need to have a infrastructure that's based on either informatics or just technology in general that will help you enable it. And when I think ahead, you know, when you look at the life expectancy in general, every century we've sort of move three, four, five years in general, okay? And I think that now we're starting to understand there are some papers that have come out, just somatic mutations that you have that either change your life expectancy to very long versus not. And so the information that you get from all of these different sources is going to drive 
the combination of all of these four things coming together to extend life. Now, one may view that as good or bad, depending on how you view this closed system we call Earth. But I would say that, you know, 50 years from now, I think rare genetic diseases where you have a Mendelian trait uh, being passed down, I think you're going to see a lot of progress in curing some of those diseases. As we move further, I think you're going to see behavior changes come together in terms of cardiovascular disease is still the number one killer, unfortunately, right? So how do you start thinking about making behavior changes early in life to enable a long-lasting life? And so I think you said 2050, so that's 30 years away from where we are today. I think that there's going to be a lot of progress that's been made to extend life. Not be one thing. There's no magic bullet. It's going to have to be a combination of all of those four things coming together, as I said. Great. So before we let you run, would like you to ask you to reflect for a minute. And given the diversity of all the experiences that you've now had and learnings you've had along the way, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self knowing all that you now know? I'll maybe end with three things, Rahul. So the first is trust your instinct. I would say that whether you do it somebody else's way or you learn from others, I think sticking to who you are and listening to your gut and doing it your way, you can't control outcomes, but you can control what you do and the process that you go. I would say, you know, stick to that because you are the best judge of how you think you can do it. I think the second thing I would say is that when you think about any decision, it is less relevant and many people have said this before, but it comes to mind for me over and over again. It's less important what decision you make, but it is more important that you do make a decision sooner rather than not. And eventually you may see in course correct or whatever, but the sooner you make a decision, the better off you are, i.e. don't hedge. <laughs> in life and in biotech, I don't think hedging works. And I think the last piece is look for hope. Because I think in this role and in this environment, what you do is not easy. You can look at all the negative things and you'll be bogged down by it. And so just having a sense of optimism continuously, I think is very, very fundamental for success. And I've seen that in life for me and my wife and the kids. I've seen that the same in the biotech arena that I've worked in. I think that optimism is going to be important. Those are the three things I think that, you know, if anybody's going down this path, I would highly recommend you think about and reflect on those things as you move forward. Great. Well, Ram, it was a pleasure having you on today. Thanks for sharing your own journey and wishing you and the rest of the Coro team continued success as you pursue some very meaningful work. Thanks, Rahul. And thank you for having me here. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.